Chapter 3 Alright, I was willing to go make a try for a fat doe. I was generally more than willing to go hunting. And while I was gone, I might do some thinking about little Arliss and that thieving stray dog. But I didn't much think my thinking would take the turn Mama wanted. I went and milked the cows and brought the milk in for Mama to strain. I got my rifle and went out to the lot and caught Jumper. I tied a rope around his neck, half hitched a noose around his nose, and pitched the rest of the rope across his back. And this was the rope I'd rein him with. Then I got me a second rope and tied it tight around his middle, just back of his withers. The second rope I'd use to tie my deer onto Jumper's back if I got one. Papa had shown me how to tie a deer's feet together and pack it home across my shoulder, and I had done it. But to carry a deer very far like that was a sweat-popping job that I'd rather leave to Jumper. He was bigger and stronger. I mounted Jumper bareback and rode him along Birdsong Creek and across a rocky hogback ridge. I thought how fine it would be if I was riding my own horse instead of an old mule. I rode down a long sweeping slope where a scattering of huge ragged top live oaks stood about in grass so tall that it dragged against the underside of Jumper's belly. <clears throat> I rode to within a quarter of a mile of Salt Lakes, then left Jumper tied in a thicket and went on afoot. <clears throat> I couldn't take Jumper close to the licks for a couple reasons. In the first place, he'd get to swishing his tail and stomping his feet at flies and maybe scare off my game. And on top of that, he was gun-shy. You fire a gun close to Jumper and he'd fall to staves. He'd snort and wheel to run and fall back against his tie rope, trying to break loose. He'd bawl and paw the air and take on like he'd been shot. And when it came to gunfire, Jumper didn't have any more sense than a red ant in a hot skillet. It was a fine morning for hunting, with the air still and the rising sun shining bright on the tall green grass and the greener leaves of the timber. There wasn't enough breeze blowing for me to tell the wind direction, so I licked one finger and held it up. Sure enough, the side next to me cooled first. That meant that what little push there was to the air was away from me, toward the salt licks, which wouldn't do at all. No deer would come to the licks if he caught wind of me first. I half-circled the licks till I had the breeze moving across them toward me and looked, took cover under a wild grapevine that hung low out of the top of the gnarled oak. <laughs> I sat down with my back against the trunk of the tree. I sat with my legs crossed and my rifle cradled on my knees. Then I made myself get as still as a tree. Papa had taught me that way back when I was little, the same as he had taught me to hunt downwind from my game, he always said... It's not your shape that catches a deer's eye. It's your moving. And if a deer can't smell you and it can't see you move, he won't ever know you're there. So I sat there holding as still as a stump, searching the clearing around the licks. The licks was a scattered outcropping of dark rocks with black streaks in them. The black streaks held the salt that Papa said had got mixed up with the rocks a jillion years ago. I don't know how he knew that, what had happened that so far back, but the salt was there, and all the hogs and cattle and wild animals in that part of the country came there to lick it. One time, Papa said that when he and Mama had first settled there, 
They'd run clean out of salt and had to beat up pieces of the rock and boil them in water. Then they'd use salty water to season their meat and cornbread. Wild game generally came to the licks to rock, <coughs> the, lick the rocks in the early mornings or late evenings. <coughs> and those were the best times to come for meat. The killer animals like bear and panther and bobcats, well, they knew this and came to the licks at the same time. Sometimes we'd get a shot at them. I'd killed two bobcats and a wolf there while waiting for a deer. And once Papa shot a big panther right after it had leaped on a mule colt and broken its neck with one slap of its heavy forepaw. I hoped I'd get a shot at a bear or a panther this morning. The only thing that showed up, however, was a little band of javelina hogs. And I knew better than to shoot them. You make a bad shot and you wound one so that he went to squealing, <laughs> you had the whole bunch after you, <clears throat> ready to eat you alive. They were small animals. Their tushes weren't as long as those of the range hogs we had running wild in the woods. They couldn't cut you as deep, but once javelinas got after you, they'd keep going after you for a lot longer time. Once Jed Simpson's boy Rosal shot into a bunch of javelinas, and they took after him. They treat him up a mesquite and kept him there from early morning till long after supper time. The mesquite was a small one, and they nearly chewed the trunk of it in two trying to get to him. After that, Rosal was willing to let the javelinas alone. The javelinas moved away, and I saw some bobwhite quail feed into the opening around the licks. Then here came three cows with young calves and a roan bull. They stood and licked at the rocks. I watched them a while, then got to watching a couple of squirrels playing in the top of a tree close to one that I sat under. The squirrels were running and jumping and chattering and flashing their tails in the sunlight. One would run along a tree branch and take a flying leap to the next branch. And there it would sit, fussing, and wait to see if the second one had the nerve to jump that far. When the second squirrel did, the first one would set up an excited chatter and make a run for a longer leap. <clears throat> sure enough, after a while... The leader tried to jump a gap that was too wide. He missed his branch, clawed at some leaves, and came tumbling to the ground. The second squirrel went to dancing up and down on his branch, then chattering louder than ever. It was plain that he was getting a big laugh out of how that show-off squirrel had made such a fool of himself. The sight was so funny that I laughed myself, and well, that's where I made my mistake. Where the doe had come from... And how she ever got so close without my seeing her, I don't know. It was like she'd suddenly lit down out of the air like a buzzard, or risen right up out of the bare ground around the rocks. And anyhow, there she stood, staring straight at me, sniffing and snorting and stomping her forefeet against the ground. <coughs> she couldn't have scented me, and I hadn't moved, but I had laughed out loud a little at those squirrels, and that sound had warned her. Well, I couldn't lift my gun then, with her staring straight at me. She'd see the motion and take scare. And while Papa was a good enough shot to down a running deer, I'd never tried it and didn't much think I could. I figured it smarter to wait. Maybe she'd quit staring at me after a while and give me a chance to lift my gun. But I waited and waited. <clears throat> and still, she kept looking at me, trying to figure me out. Finally, she started coming toward me. She'd take one dancing leap and then another and bob her head and flap her long ears about, then start moving toward me again. And I didn't know what to do. 
It made me nervous, the, the way she kept coming at me. Sooner or later, she was bound to make out what I was, and then she'd whirl and be gone before I could draw a beat on her. She kept doing me that way till finally my heart was flopping inside my chest like a catfish in a wet sack. I could feel my muscles tightening up all over. I knew then that I couldn't wait any longer. It was either shoot or bust wide open, so I whipped my gun up to my shoulder. And like I'd figured, she snorted and wheeled so fast that she was just a brown blur against my gun sights. I pressed the trigger, hoping my aim was good. After I fired, the black powder charge in my gun threw up such a thick fog of blue smoke that I couldn't see through it. I reloaded, then leaped to my feet and went running through the smoke. And what I saw when I came into the clear again made my heart drop down in my shoes. There went the frightened, snorting cattle, stampeding through the trees with their tails in the air like it was heel fly time. And right beside them went my doe, running all humped up and with her white pointed tail clamped tight to her rump, which meant that I'd hit her but it hadn't made a killing shot. I didn't like that. I never minded killing for meat. Like Papa had told me, every creature has to kill to live. But to wound an animal was something else, especially one as pretty and harmless as a deer. It made me sick to think of a doe's escaping, maybe to hurt for days before she finally died. I swung my gun up, hoping yet to get in a killing shot, but I couldn't fire on account of the cattle. They were too close to the deer, I might kill one of them. Then suddenly the doe did a surprising thing. Way down in the flat there, nearly out of sight, she ran head on into the trunk of a tree, like she was stone blind. I saw the flash of her light-colored belly as she went down. I waited. She didn't get up. I tore out, running through the chintall grass as fast as I could. When finally I reached the place, all out of breath, I found her lying dead, with a bullet hole through her middle, right where it it should have shattered the heart. Suddenly... I wasn't sick anymore. I felt big and strong and sure of myself. I hadn't made a bad shot. I hadn't caused an animal a lot of suffering. All I'd done was get meat for the family, shooting it on the run, just like Papa did. I rode toward the cabin, sitting behind the gutted doe that I'd tied across Jumper's back. I rode, feeling proud of myself as a hunter and a provider for the family. Making a killing shot like that on the moving deer made me feel bigger and more important. Too big and important, I guess, to fuss with little Arliss about that old yellow dog. I still didn't think much of it, the idea of keeping him, but I guess that when you're nearly a man, you have to learn to put up with a lot of aggravation from little old bitty kids. Little Little Arliss kept the thieving rascal. I guess I could provide enough meat for him, too. And that's how I was feeling when I crossed Birdsong Creek and rode up to the spring under the trees below the house. Then suddenly I felt different. That's when I found little Arliss in the pool again. And in there with him was that big yellow dog. That dirty, stinking rascal romping around in our drinking water. Arliss! I yelled at little Arliss. You get that nasty old dog out of the water! They hadn't seen me ride up, and I guess it was my sudden yell that surprised them both so bad. Arliss went to tearing out of the pool on one side and the dog on the other. Arliss was screaming his head off, and here came the big dog with his wet fur rising along the ridge of of his backbone, banging me like I was a panther. I didn't give him a chance to get to me. I was too quick about jumping off the mule and grabbing up some rocks. I was lucky. 
The first rock I threw caught the big dog right between the eyes, and I was thrown hard. He went down, yelling and pitching and wallowing. And just as he came to his feet again, I caught him in the ribs with another one. And that was too much for him. He turned tail then and took for the house, squalling and bawling. But I wasn't the only good rock thrower in the family. Arliss was only five years old, but I had spent a lot of time showing him how to throw a rock. Now I wish I hadn't, because about then a rock nearly tore my left ear off. I whirled around just barely in time to duck another that would have caught me square in the left eye. I yelled, Arliss, you quit that! But Arliss wasn't listening. He was too scared and too mad. He'd been over to pick up a rock big enough to brain me with if he'd been strong enough to throw it. <clears throat> well, when you're 14 years old, you can't afford to mix in with a rock fight with your five-year-old brother. You can't do it. Even when you're in the right. You just can't explain a thing like that to your folks. All they'll do is point out how much bigger you are and how unfair it is to your little brother. <clears throat> All I could do was turn tail like the big yellow dog and head for the house yelling for mama. And right after me came little Arliss naked and running as fast as he could, doing his dead-level best to get close enough to hit me with the big rock he was packing. I outran him, of course, and then here came Mama, running so fast that her long skirts were flying and calling out, What on earth, boys? I hollered, You better catch that Arliss, as I ran past her. And she did, but little Arliss was so mad that I thought for a second he was going to hit her with the rock before she could get it away from him. Well, it all wound up like I'd figured. Mama switched little Arliss for playing in our drinking water. Then she blessed me out, good and proper, for being so bossy with him. And the big yellow dog that had caused all that trouble got off scot-free. It didn't seem right and fair to me. How could I be the man of the family if nobody paid any attention to what I thought or said? I went and led Jumper up to the house. I hung the doe in the live oak tree that grew beside the house and began skinning it and cutting up the meat. I thought of the fine shot I'd made and knew it was worth bragging about to Mama. But what was the use? She wouldn't pay me any mind, not until I did something she thought I shouldn't have done. Then she'd treat me like I wasn't any older than little Arliss. I sulked and felt sorry for myself all the time. I worked with the meat. The more I thought about it, the madder I got at that big yellow dog. I hung the fresh cuts of venison up in the dog run, right where old Yeller had stolen the hog meat the night he came. I did that for a couple reasons. To begin with, that was the handiest and coolest place we had for hanging fresh meat. And on top of that, I was looking for a good excuse to get rid of that dog. I figured if he stole more of our meat, Mama would have to see that he was too sorry and no account to keep. But old Yeller was too smart for that. He gnawed around on some of the deer's leg bones that Mama threw away. But not once did he ever even act like he could smell the meat we'd hung up. Chapter 4 A couple days later, I had another and better reason for wanting to get rid of the old yeller. And that was when the two longhorn range bulls met at the house and pulled off their big fight. We first heard the bulls while we were eating our dinner of cornbread, roasted venison, and green watercress gathered from below the spring. One bull came from off a high rocky ridge to the south of the cabin. We could hear his angry rumbling as he moved down through the thickets of catclaw and scrub oak. Then he lifted his voice in the wild, brassy blare that set echoes clamoring in the draws and canyons for miles around. 
That old bull's tick-talk and fight, I told Mama, <clears throat> and little Arliss. He's bragging that he's the biggest and toughest and meanest. He's telling all the other bulls that if they got a lick of sense, they'll take the cover when he's around. Almost before I could finish talking, we heard the second bull. He was over about the salt lick somewhere. His bellering was just as loud and braggy as the first one's. He was telling the first bull that his fight talk was all bluff. He was saying that he was the he-bull of the range and that he was the biggest and meanest and toughest. We sat and ate and listened to them, and we could tell by their rumblings and bawlings that they were gradually working their way down through the brush toward each other and getting madder by the minute. I always like to see a fight between bulls or bears or wild boars or almost any wild animals. Now, I got so excited that I jumped up from the table and went to the door and stood listening. I'd made up my mind that if the bulls met and started a fight, <clears throat> I was going to see it. And there were still plenty of careless weeds and crabgrass that needed hoeing out of the corn, but I guess I could let them go long enough to see a bull fight. Our cabin stood on a high knoll about a hundred yards above the spring. Years ago, Papa had cleared out all the brush and trees from around it, leaving a couple of live oaks near the house for shade. And that was so that he could get a clear shot of at any Comanche or Apache coming to scalp us. And while I stood there at the door, the first bull entered the clearing, right where the Papa had one time shot a Comanche off of his horse. He was a leggy, mustard-colored bull with black freckles, speckling his jaws and the underside of his belly. He had one great horn set for hooking, while the other hung down past his jaw like a tallow candle that had drooped in the heat. He was what the Mexicans called a chongo, or droop horn. He trotted out a little piece into the clearing, then stopped to drop his head low. He went to snorting and shaking his horns and pawing up the dry dirt with his forefeet. He flung the dirt back over his neck and shoulders in great clouds of dust. I couldn't see the other bull yet, but I could tell by the sound of him that he was close and coming in on a trot. I hollered back to Mama and Little Arliss. They're fixing a fight right here where we can all see it. There was a split rail fence around our cabin. I ran out and climbed up and took a seat on the top rail. Mom and little Arliss came and climbed up to sit beside me. And then from the other side of the clearing came the second bull. He was the red roan I'd seen at the salt licks the day I shot the doe. He wasn't as tall and long-legged as the chongo bull, but every bit as heavy and powerful. And while his horns were shorter, they were both curved right for hooking. Like the first bull, he came blaring out into the clearing, then stopped to snort and sling his wicked horns and paw up clouds of dust. He made it plain that he wanted to fight just as bad as the first bull. About that time, from somewhere behind the cabin, came old Yeller. He charged through the rails, bristled up and roaring almost as loud as the bulls. All their bellowing and snorting and dust pawing sounded like a threat to him. He'd come out to run them away from the house. I hollered at him. You get back, you rascal, I shouted. You're fixing to spoil our show. Then stopped him. That stopped him. But he still wasn't satisfied. He kept banging the bulls till I jumped down and picked up a rock. I didn't have to throw it. All I had to do was draw back like I was going to. That sent him flying back into the yard and around the corner of the cabin, yelling like I'd murdered him. That also put little Arliss on the fight. He started screaming at me. He tried to get down where he could pick up a rock. But Mama held him. Hush now, baby, hush, she said. Travis isn't going to hurt your dog. He just doesn't want him to scare off the bulls. 
Well, it took some talking, but she finally got little Arliss mine off of hitting me with a rock. I climbed back up on the fence. I told Mama that I had, was betting on Chongo. She said she was betting her money on Roni because she had two fighting horns. We sat there and watched the bulls get ready to fight and talked and laughed and had ourselves a real good time. We never once thought about being in any danger. We, When we learned different, it was nearly too late. Suddenly, Chongo quit pawing the dirt and flung his tail into the air. Look out! I shouted. Here he comes! Sure enough, Chongo charged, pounding the hard pan with his feet and roaring his mightiest. And here came Roni to meet him, charging with his head low and his tail high in the air. I let out an excited yell. They met head on with a loud crash of horns and a jar so solid that it seemed like I could feel it clear up in the fence. Roni went down. I yelled louder, thinking Chongo was winning. A second later, though, Roni was back on his feet and charging through the cloud of dust their hooves had turned up. He caught Chongo broadside. He slammed his sharp horns up to the hilt of his shoulder of the mustard-colored bull. He drove against him so fast and hard that Chongo couldn't wheel away. All he could do was barely keep on his feet by giving ground. And here they came, straight at our rail fence. Land sakes, Mama cried suddenly, and leaped from the fence, dragging little Arliss down after her. But I was too si- excited about the fight. I didn't see the danger in time. I was still astride the top rail when the struggling bulls crashed through the fence, splintering the post and rails and toppling me to the ground almost under them. I lunged to my feet, wild with scare, and got knocked flat on my face in the dirt. I sure thought I was a goner. The roaring of the bulls was right in my ears. The hot, reeking scent of their blood and was in my nose. The bone-crushing weight of their hooves was stomping all around and all over me, churning up such a fog of dust that I couldn't see a thing. Then suddenly Mama had me by the hand and was dragging me out from under, yelling in a scared voice, Run, Travis, run! Well, she didn't have to keep hollering at me. I was running as fast as I ever hoped to run. And with her running faster and dragging me along by the hand, we scooted up through the open cabin door just about the quick breath before Roni slammed Chongo against it. They hit so hard that the whole cabin shook. I saw great big chunks of dried mud chinking fall from between the logs, and there for a second I thought Chongo was coming through that door, right on top of us. But turned broadside like he was, and he was too big to be shoved through a small opening. Then a second later, he got Roni's horn somehow and wheeled on him. Here they went, then, down alongside the cabin wall, roaring and stomping and slamming their heels against the logs. I looked at Mama and little Arliss. Mama's face was white as a bedsheet. For once, little Arliss was so scared that he couldn't scream. And suddenly, I wasn't scared anymore. I was just plain mad. I reached for a braided rawhide whip that had hung in a coil on the wooden peg driven between the logs. That scared Mama still worse. Oh no, Travis, she cried. Don't go out there. Well, they're fixing to tear down the house, Mama. I said. But they might run you over, Mama argued. The bulls crashed again into the cabin. They grunted and strained and roared. Their horns and hoofs clattered against the logs. I turned and headed for the door and looked for... Looked to me like they'd kill us all if we'd ever broke through those log walls. Mama came running to grab me by the arm. Call the dog, she said. Put the dog after them. Well, that was a real good idea. I was half aggravated with myself because I hadn't thought of it. And here was a chance for that old yellow dog to pay back for all the trouble he'd made around the place. I stuck my head out the door. The bulls had fought away from the house. Now they were busy tearing down more of the yard fence. 
And I ducked out and around the corner and ran through the dog run back toward the back of the house, calling, Here, yeller! Here, yeller! Come and get him! Get him, boy! Sick him! Old yeller was back there, all right. But he didn't come, and he didn't sick him. He took one look at me running toward him with that bullwhip in my hand and knew that I'd just come to kill him. He tucked his tail and lit out in a yelling run for the woods. If there had been any way I could have done it, right then is when I would have killed him. There wasn't time to mess with the fool dog. I had to do something about those bulls. They were wrecking the place, and I had to stop it. Papa had left me to look after things while he was gone, and I wasn't about to let two mad bulls tear up everything we had. I ran up to the bulls and went to work on them with the whip. It was a heavy 16-footer, and I'd practically practice with it a lot. I could crack that rawhide popper louder than a gunshot. I could cut a branch as thick as my little finger off of a green mesquite with it. But I couldn't stop those bulls from fighting. They were too mad. They were hurting too much already. I might as well have been spitting on them. I yelled and whipped them till I gave clear out. Still, they went right on with their roaring bloody battle. I guess they would have to keep kept fighting until they leveled the house in the ground if I hadn't been for that freak accident. We had a heavy two-wheeled Mexican cart that Papa used for hauling wood and hay. It happened to be standing out in front of the house, right where the ground broke away in a sharp slant toward the spring and creek. It had just come to me that I could get my gun and shoot the bulls when Chongo crowded Roni up against the cart. He ran that simple... Long, single horn, clear under Roni's belly. Now he gave such a big heave that he lifted Roni's feet clear off the ground and rolled him into the air. A second later, Roni landed flat on his back inside the bed of the dump cart, with all four feet sticking up. I thought his weight would break the cart to pieces, but I was wrong. The cart was stronger than I'd thought. All the bull's weight did was tilt it so that the wheels started rolling. And away the cart went down the hill, carrying Roni with it. When that happened, Chongo was suddenly the silliest-looking bull you ever saw. He stood with his tail up and his head high, staring after the runaway cart. He couldn't for the life of him figure out what he'd done with the wrong bull. The rolling cart rattled and banged and careened its way down the slope till it was right beside the spring. There, one wheel struck a big boulder, bouncing that side of the cart so high that it turned over and skidded to a stop. The rogue bull spilled right into the spring. Water flew in all directions. Roni got his feet under him. He scrambled up and out of the hole. But I guess that cart ride and sudden wetting had taken all the fight out of him. Anyhow, he headed for the timber, running with his tail tucked. Water streamed down out of his hair, leaving a dark, wet trail in the dirt, dry dust to show which way he'd gone. Chongo saw Roni then. He snorted and went after him, but when he got to the cart, he slid to a sudden stop. The cart, lying on its side now, still had that top wheel spinning around and around. Chongo had never seen anything like that. He stood and stared at the spinning wheel. He couldn't understand it. He lifted his nose up close to smell it. Finally, he reached out the long tongue to lick and taste it. Well, that was a bad mistake. I guess the iron tire of the spinning wheel was roughed up pretty badly and maybe had chips of broken rock and gravel stuck to it. Anyhow, from the way Chongo acted, it must have scraped all the hide off his tongue. Chongo bawled and went running backward. He whirled away so fast that he lost his footing and fell down. 
He came to his feet and took out in the opposite direction from the roan bull. He ran, slinging his head and flopping his tongue around, bawling like he'd stuck it into a bear trap. He ran with his tail clamped just as tight as the roan bulls. It was enough to make you laugh your head off, the way both those bad bulls had gotten the wit scared clear out of them, each one thinking he'd lost the fight. But they sure had made a wreck of the yard fence. <laughs> <laughs>